Welcome back to the Talking Acoustics podcast. Talking Acoustics looks into the art and science of acoustics as I catch up with some of the people who spend their lives working in this field. I'm Matthew Otley. I work for Marshall Day Acoustics in Sydney, Australia, and I'm interested in anything to do with acoustics. In this episode, I have a conversation with Christopher Allen from NASA, who I was fortunate to meet at the recent Australian Acoustical Society conference in Perth, where he was attending as one of the keynote speakers. I have to admit that prior to this conference, I'd never thought about what role acoustics has in space, but I'm fascinated by space and spaceflight, and it turns out NASA faces some pretty interesting challenges in terms of acoustics. Chris's business card describes him as manager of the Johnson Space Centre Acoustics Office for NASA. So I started out by asking him how he explains to people at a barbecue exactly what he does for a living. I get asked the question uh, often, so uh, my standard response, I guess, is just to explain um, that we uh, work with the space vehicles and uh, we try to manage the acoustic environment inside the vehicles uh, so that uh, the environment is conducive to communications, uh, effective communications between the astronaut uh, crew. Uh, also, uh, so they can hear alarms, um, so you can hear the depressurization alarm, if it's a depressurization or something. And then uh, uh, also for habitability, so they can concentrate on their tasks um, and not be annoyed uh, by strange noises. Um, and also so that they can get a good night's sleep and, uh, and also not end up with temporary or permanent hearing loss. Mm. So you trained in aeronautics engineering originally? Yes. And you started out working... At the National Full Scale Aerodynamic Complex. Mm, yep, that's that right. right NASA yes. Ames in uh, Ames Research Center in California. Mm-hmm. So, can you tell me a bit about that work? And was uh-huh, that acoustics sure. related? Yes. Uh huh. Yes, it was. Um, so, I was hired there uh, to be a part of the high speed civil transport uh, program, which is an effort to uh, replace the Concorde uh, with the airplane that, you know, of course, flies supersonically, uh, but would have a lower. Uh, flyover noise profile, so it's for landings and takeoffs at airports. And so uh, we did work uh, at the at the NFAC, as we call it, and um, uh, it's uh, that's a wind tunnel facility, basically, and it has uh, two of the largest wind tunnels in the world. Uh, it has a, a wind tunnel with a test section of 40 feet by 80 feet. I'm sorry, don't know the off, offhand what that, that is in the meters. Um, and then in uh, a larger um, test section of 80 feet by 120 feet. And wow. so that's that's big enough, for example, they put a full-scale F-18 uh, wow. fighter jet in there. And so we used to test uh, – in the, it was built in the World War II era. Uh, the 40 by 80 foot uh, test section uh, would hold a World War II aircraft. Uh, so they, they did all sorts of tests. In there, and uh, so at some point, they treated the test section with an acoustic lining. And um, and after I'd been working there for many years, they actually removed the test section and installed a meter deep acoustic wedge system in the test section. And we had to design a a floor that would hold up a truck, but the acoustic waves would go right through it into the wow. floor and be absorbed. So it's pretty it's a challenge. interesting. It was challenging, yeah. And, uh, and I made a lot of measurements inside uh, of the jet noise, uh, for example, for that high-speed civil transport. Um, 
and branched out into other areas. Uh, and so we did a lot of different uh, noise testings with every neat experience. Wow. So how, how do you measure the noise from a jet engine in a – that's inside a jet, uh, a jet test cell? Yeah, so no, uh, not a test cell, but inside the wind tunnel. Uh, so, you know, the engine's mounted in there, and it's mounted on a balance so they can measure all the forces that the jet engine creates and also the wind forces on it. And um, we had um, you, you put microphones basically inside the flow, so you have these microphone struts that hold the microphone up, and then you have uh, microphones that have uh, some sort of aerodynamic microphone forebody. Sometimes they call it a nose cone, screwed yeah. onto the top of yep. the tip of the microphone, and um, and so as long as the en engine noise is uh, higher than the background noise, then uh, you could measure the noise from it. We had a we built a traversing system so we could uh, remotely move our microphones up and down stream so we can get all the different uh, radiation angles from the jet engine. Um, and then we did a lot of work with you know the microphones to try and reduce the background noise levels. We did a lot of work on the fan noise, trying to reduce the noise of the uh, wind tunnel fan system. Mm. So. I've done a little bit of work on uh, engine test cells and jets, and ah. it's, a, it's a hostile... Environment, <laughs> yes. <laughs> inside a inside a, a test cell. So I imagine the um, trying to get gear that uh, is comfortable in that sort of environment must be tricky. Or is that? Um, yeah, it was. Uh, there were some things to learn. I remember um, one lesson learned. Uh, we had microphones. We'd store them up in the control room, which was air conditioned, and then of course. The wind tunnel was not air conditioned so it you know it was whatever temperature was outside and so we'd have trouble with the uh, with the uh, condenser microphones getting water on the diaphragm yeah, and got, so we'd be yeah. listening to them and they'd be popping pop, pop, yeah. pop. and so uh, so it took me a while but after we figured out that the desiccant chamber needed to stay upstairs within the wind tunnel just outside the wind tunnel so you didn't change the temperature of it <laughs> so that was one quick lesson learned save some time and and how do you get a uh, a floor in a in a wind tunnel or a test area that can hold a truck but let the uh, all the noise through? Um, we had a serious design campaign to to uh, work on uh, different configurations. Uh, we chose the most porous uh, perforated plate yep. and supported it on perforated slats. Yeah, and had. Uh, I guess there are four by four foot sections. Uh, so, um, and then there was all sorts of treatment in between the slats and had a bunch of different configurations. We had some acoustic consultants come out, John and Emma Wilby. I don't know if you heard of them from the. Uh, uh, used, uh, John Wilby used to work for uh, Bolt Baranek and New Oh, right. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. Wow. Um, the high speed civilian aircraft, you touched on mm -hmm. that work was looking around the noise from the the jet system at takeoff and landing rather than the from, sonic boom and from the jet engine uh, yeah and they were working on uh, some techniques to reduce the mixing noise from the jet and yeah. so they had an ejector system on there that would entrain air from the outside and then it had uh, sort of like a louvered nozzle so that the primary flow came out and the uh, secondary flow being entrained uh, had uh, the louvered uh, 
sort of lobes to mix into. So they were trying to reduce the size of the eddies, uh, mixing eddies uh, to smaller size. Because mm, the Concorde was notoriously um, was loud. loud. Yes, <laughs> I think it, I think it just had conical uh, jet exhausts. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that uh, not an acoustic question, I guess, but uh, that program was originally to sort of spur industry to then take take on that task and and take it yeah. through to the sort of the next generation of, of that sort of aircraft and we worked collaborative collaboratively say that right collaboratively with uh industry uh, that was back when mcdonald douglas was its own company so we mm-hmm. had mcdonald douglas and boeing we were working with and then we also worked with the engine providers pratt and whitney and GE aircraft engines that are all involved in yep. doing this testing. So, But ultimately that sort of uh, didn't go ahead or sort of? Uh, you know, I don't exactly remember, but I think, I mean, the program uh, was put on hold uh, and uh, I'm not sure if it was for cost or what yeah. uh, the reason was, but yeah. Hmm. So you had come out of university from an aerospace degree mm-hmm. and gone basically straight into acoustics. How, how, why, why acoustics, I guess? How did you get yeah. involved uh, in that side I of things? I went to uh, Texas A&M uh, University, whoop, and um, and uh, I was studying aerodynamics there, uh, specialized in, uh, in uh, engines, jet engines, and... Um, after I completed my bachelor's degree, I uh, wanted to stay on, get a master's degree, and so started working with a professor. And um, he put me on a project to um, to pick up uh, another graduate student's work and add on to the method that he was doing. And mm-hmm. so I had, um, so it ended up it was a noise prediction uh, from a, it was a Barry Gannett airplane which had a counter-rotating propeller system on it okay. and so we had a, a, a method uh, for predicting uh, the noise from the plane flying over and then compared it to the uh, measurements and so one of the things that I added was a non-uniform airflow uh, distribution coming into the propeller and so uh, so made that improvement to the code and then presented that so that was my first introduction into acoustics mm-hmm. Um, and, and it just took off from there. Somebody saw me presenting, and I had job offers coming in. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. It, it often seems very accidental the places we end up. And, yeah. Uh, but yeah. then when you're there, you you wonder if it could have ever been any other way. Yep. You have to take advantage of your opportunities. Yep. <laughs> um, while you're at Ames, um, you did some work on jet noise source location techniques. Yes. All right. Um, yeah, so uh, one of the things we wanted to do is, you know, we're measuring uh, pretty close to the jet, and so, um, you know, we wanted to extrapolate this data. The idea was to do some uh, flyover predictions uh, based on measurements, and, uh, you know, if you're too close, and if you're using the, um, the nozzle exit as your source location, well, then you, your extrapolations are going to all go in the wrong direction. Uh, so um, we um, uh, were developing methods for 
locating where the noise sources were within the jet. And so um, I worked on a technique. It was a cross-correlation technique where um, uh, where we had an anechoic chamber that had a jet nozzle in it. And so I was able to do cross-correlations from two different sideline locations. And uh, from lining up the peaks, I could tell that the low frequencies uh, were coming uh, from uh, further downstream in the jet, and the higher frequencies were coming uh, from locations that were closer up in the jet. And so if you perform your extrapolations from the, the actual noise source location, uh, then, then you're a lot more accurate. Right. So you're now at the Johnson Space Center mm -hmm. in Houston. That's right. Um, and working on acoustic noise inside the International Space Station and the Orion multi-purpose crew vehicle, which is, yep, which is our in, new vehicle, in progress. Yeah. Yep, just yep. being developed. Uh -huh. That's our new vehicle that, uh, that NASA is developing uh, eventually to take us to Mars. Yep. And you touched on some of the issues uh, that you're trying to tackle uh, before you. So it's looking at... About... about about communications among the crew. It's about alarm audibility, habitability, uh, sleep disturbance, reducing that, and also protecting the crew's hearing. Because the levels inside, so there's, I guess, there's a few different scenarios at launch. I presume the um, yeah. noise levels are pretty loud. <laughs> yeah, and the crew are wearing uh, spacesuits, but then they yep. have communication headsets. So, uh, you know, they have some some helpers there. Yep. And then once they're in the space station, I presume there's a whole lot of noise sources that they are living right. in with sort of 24-7? Yes. So, um, you know, they're in a closed environment and, um, and there's a lot of equipment uh, that's there to keep them alive. <laughs> so uh, environmental it's control important. systems, yeah. So they, uh, they move the air around remove the carbon dioxide from the air, they remove uh, trace contaminants from the air, um, they, there's a lot of monitoring going on of uh, the conditions. Um, they're working on a regenerative uh, system where they take the carbon dioxide and uh, take the water out of your urine and recombine it back and, um, and try and generate oxygen and water. Wow. And, uh, so trying to make as closed loop uh, system as possible. So that's yep. some of the equipment that's there. And then there's a lot of experiments going on and all of them make noise. Mm. So what sort of noise levels are the astronauts typically exposed to? Well, uh, we do a lot of work to control that. And uh, so there's, um, you know, there's different modules in the space station. So it depends on which module you're in. Um, so they may range, uh, uh, I'd say around 60 dBAs, probably uh, at the higher level in the, in the U.S. segment of the space station, uh, right around 60 dBA, and some, some places are, are quieter. Uh, we have uh, crew quarters, which we've done a lot of work on to make them quiet. Uh, those are lower than 50 dBA, so mm. they can get some rest. Yep. Um, but still, I guess, uh, compared to living in an apartment or a house on yes. Earth, it's probably uh, yeah. two, two or, uh, this hotel two or four times as loud. around 30 dB or yeah. 20 dB, something yeah. like that. So, so definitely yeah. louder. Oh, yeah. Um, 
Now, people obviously on Earth live and work in enclosed environments. And yeah. um, what what sort of um, challenges do you face in the context of being in space that are different to what? What what are some of the mm-hmm. space specific um, so, issues? So, uh, for example, um, there's no natural convection in the microgravity environment. So, um, so you you know, natural convection is when uh, if you have a heat source, uh, well, then uh, the air around that heat source becomes less dense and it rises to the top because of the gravity. Uh, and then, as the air cools, when that comes back down. Well, in a microgravity environment, you don't have that. Uh, since there's no gravity, there's no natural convection, and any heat source will heat the air around it, and the air around it just stays right there. Stays and, gets right, yeah. and so it just keeps on getting hotter and hotter and hotter until it overheats. So you have to have forced convection on it, like a fan blowing so You have to artificially it. create yeah. the air movement around every, right. anything that generates heat. So anything that generates heat always comes with a little fan, uh, and of course, wow. a little fan comes with a little bit of noise, yeah. and then there's a whole bunch of those, and they're all uh, together. So the other other thing uh, is they also have um, cold plates where you could uh, attach your heat source to a cold plate, and that has some fluid running through it, and then that's that also has some pumps that are associated with moving that fluid and getting that heat exchanged. So that's another noise source, but that one, yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's helpful mm. acoustic perspective. Because then you don't have so many fans. So, is there specific technology then, with regards to acoustics, that gets sort of developed out of those programs? Uh, there is. Um, and I guess the lead-on question is then: Does any of that filter back to earthbound applications? Um, I'm not sure about that. A lot of the development is in um, how to control the noise, and uh, a lot of that is in developing acoustic materials that you can use in flight. Because you can't just you can't use fiberglass, for example, because the fibers oh, come out fibers, and, yeah. and the crew breathe them in. So, uh, so we have to develop our own special materials that are uh, that are flame resistant and don't have uh, off-gassing mm-hmm. materials. Uh, aren't frangible and uh so anyway so there's a lot of development in in uh in the materials development but there's plenty of other materials you know here that you can use yeah on Earth. yeah yeah so i presume weight must be a critical factor in everything yeah uh-huh yeah um we try to do uh, vibration isolation and uh and barriers with as small amount of weight as possible mm. so which is which is a little tricky because yes, normally you want you know, the vibration the isolation. You <laughs> want to get a big mass up so that yeah. it isolates, and you want your your barriers to have as high a mass as possible to stop as much yeah. of the noise. Yeah, that's right. And I presume because you're in a vacuum, there's a vacuum outside. You, you, there's no external right, noise they, impact. Is that right? Um, right. Yeah. There's uh, all the noise stays within the vehicle, so the noise does not transfer through the shells and out into space it's just so, yeah uh, so it's high, highly reverberant wow yeah so of the of the different things that you've done in your career what are you most proud of uh i've got uh, a lot of things i'm i'm proud of um um 
we've just certified a new uh, acoustic monitor um, that does, it's a monitor that does dissymmetry and sound level meter measurements uh, using the same piece of hardware. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, that took a little over, well, took several years <laughs> to get, a, get it approved, but then a year to get it certified, and we've just recently flown that uh, on a, uh, one of the latest space vehicle launches, and we'll use it for the first time. Um, I guess later this later this month, I think we're wow. going to test it out. So that's is that it. developed in house? No, so, no or is it collaborative with partners? It's a commercial off-the-shelf yeah. uh, right. device. Yeah. So I presume power consumption must be important too. Yes, and this is battery operated, so yeah. we'll supply batteries for that. Yeah. And um, so uh, um, some of the other things so we've. Been, uh, employed some acoustic blankets on orbit to try and uh, try and reduce the noise levels in one of the modules that was a little loud, and that was pretty successful. When you say acoustic blanket, as a like a damping, yeah, well, it's an absorbent blanket. Absorptive, okay. Yeah, so yeah. it reduces the reverberation. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, so that was good. Um, back when I worked at Ames, um, I had uh, some developments with some. Uh, uh, nose cone uh, developments, some ex uh, some shapes that allowed us to to make some uh, high frequency uh, measurements without um, the standard nose cone had some very high frequency tones that would interfere with our measurements mm -hmm. when we put them in the wind tunnel airflow, and so uh, developed a new shape for that. That was a good achievement. Also, we developed some uh, microphone support struts that were a lot quieter. Uh, and now people are using them in other other wind tunnels. Mm, okay. Um, yeah, those are some. <laughs> and uh, coming back to Earth, if you pardon the pun, um, what about a uh, failure? Can you tell me about a time when you've uh, had a failure and um, what yeah. happened and what, what you sort of learned from it and took away from it? So, in uh, one of the successes I mentioned with the uh, with the aerodynamic microphone four body. Um, I wrote a paper once to try and explain. Uh, so not only did it um, help with the with the high frequency tone issue, it also had a lower background noise, just a lower broadband noise, as a lower response to the turbulence in the in the airstream. And uh, so I was trying to explain that um, using Bernoulli's equation, and I made an assumption that the uh, total pressure was going to remain constant. And um, so I, I showed it to my, my branch chief, I guess, at the time. And he had a question for me about my assumptions and whether or not if that was a good assumption. Uh, he thought the static pressure should remain constant, but I didn't listen to him. And I was wrong, and he was right. <laughs> so I had to go back and uh, errata my paper. But uh, so, uh, so I guess uh, my lessons learned was to always uh, carefully uh, think about your assumptions and make sure that they're right. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you think um, the future of acoustics holds? I guess in some respects you're at the cutting edge in, in, in some of the applications that you're doing. What, what do, you th do you have any insights about what you think the future of acoustics um, look like? Yeah, I, I'm hoping that um, that we'll have more capability to do for companies that are building 
spaceflight hardware to do noise control. So, um, so there's uh, not only are there the companies that develop the big the vehicles themselves, there are also companies that are building all these science experiments that go up there, and there are, there are literally hundreds of these science experiments and different companies developing them. And so uh, their ability to do noise control engineering and, um, and make measurements uh, uh, is you know, widely varying. Some are very good and some uh, need, need some help. And so our office is there to provide assistance, materials and noise control and measurements to help them meet the requirements as best they can. So, uh, so that's was sort of what, what I'm hoping um, is just an awareness of the importance of it of acoustics and then the willingness and the ability to do something about it. Hmm. What, what advice would you give um, to someone starting out in acoustics? Um, just to, um, I guess, find something you're interested in it and pursue it. And um, it's such a broad uh, field that... Uh, there's so many different applications, or so many different ways to look at it. Uh, there's got to be there's something there for anybody, I would think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, a couple of last questions. Um, a lot of people in acoustics ask this question: Do, do you play an instrument, and what's the role of music in your life? Mm -hmm, sure, uh, I'm a drummer, and so. Uh, so, so not a musician. But hey now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um I don't know, I guess it gives me a, a feel for the way things resonate. Yeah. Um uh and uh also gave me you know the knowledge that it's a really good idea to protect your hearing. Yeah. And so as a musician, you know, I appreciate music and being able to hear music and so I think that's a, a good thing is get some of those musician earplugs and use them. Yeah, if you can come to that realization when you're young. Yeah, uh... that would help, yeah. <laughs> Do you think it influenced your career decisions at all? Uh, no, probably not. I was in a, a NASA, all NASA band. That was fun, though. So that was. <laughs> what was the name of the NASA band? Oh, it was, it was called uh, After 10. And uh, uh, I sort of joined late. So I. I don't remember what the meaning of the name what of the, the band was. was. Yeah, but it was fun, and there were a bunch of great people that were in that band. So um, it was a good experience. So the last question: um, You have um, obviously got a, a an interesting skill set, and you've worked on a number of different sorts of things. Um, and I presume you know you could probably choose to do a, a number of different things with with your work and your career. Mm -hmm, sure. um, why? Why then do you still do acoustics sort of now a few decades down the track from choosing to, to go into it, uh, perhaps accidentally? But uh... It's just because it's so interesting uh, and there's so much opportunity to do different types of things and to make an impact. Uh, so um, uh, And we're working with the space program. Of course, that's very interesting. And uh, we're going to be doing great things. Uh, with this new deep space gateway that, that we have. It's going to be our new space station out by the moon that we're just starting to work on. 
Uh, so there's going to be a lot of acoustic challenges there. We've got ideas on, uh, on having lower noise in our crew sleep stations, um, especially out here at, the, at our new, uh, new space station. And uh, I don't know, there's just a lot of challenges out there. Mm. Well, Chris Fallon, thank you so much for talking. It's uh, oh, very sure. interesting. Sure, sure. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get in touch with me or you have any feedback, you can check out www.talkingacoustics.com. For more information on NASA's uh, work in acoustics and Christopher's work, uh, you can check out the NASA website. Also on the NASA website, uh, you can find a book called Acoustics and Noise Control in Space Crew Compartments if you want to delve a bit deeper into this subject. Uh, That's available at the NASA Technical Reports server, which is ntrs.nasa.gov. That's a 500-odd page book uh, that discusses the acoustics and noise control in spacecraft crew compartments using experience and lessons learned from the Apollo, Orbiter and ISS programs.